Good morning again, everyone. Thanks for your patience uh, in the late start, and I will try to make up a little time in the sermon. Um, So if I'm talking a little bit fast, I apologize. Um, If you're new here, we're um, going through a rather lengthy sermon series that we started last week on the ABCs of in-town. Who are we? Why do we exist? Why are we here? And we're doing so by um, taking a look at the Gospel of Matthew, not from book one straight through, but kind of hopping along. And so this um, morning we're looking at, go- uh, at Matthew 16, and this is our gospel reading. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such a strange question, right? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Imagine asking that today outside of the church to someone on the streets of Portland. If you ask someone that, the the ground might open. Buildings would crumble where they stood, full-grown adults might faint. I mean, that's such a strange, arresting question. And where is the church that lives as if he really is God's unexpected answer to the problems and the difficulties and the brokenness of our world, the church that is faithful in suffering witness, the church that dares to be countercultural because it believes in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection are real. Well, this is the first time that we have Jesus making mention of a church, and we're going to ask today, what does he mean by that, and is that kind of body the thing that answers the questions that we just mentioned? And we talked last week about chapters 1 and 28 as sort of the bookends, well, they are the literal bookends of Matthew, but they're bookends to what he's trying to do, and that is to communicate that the church is the new Israel of God that everything that Israel was meant to do and to be and to accomplish, that the church now has that commission and that identity. The church is to bring the news of Jesus as the Messiah, the suffering king, to the farthest reaches of the earth, to plant flags of resurrection everywhere that the curse exists, that there is pain and that there is brokenness, that proclaim death and dying. The church is to be there to say, no, there is another way. There is new life to be had, to be not only the words, but the hands and feet of Jesus in the midst of a hurting world. Now, of course, that's an enormous task. And so he leaves behind the best and the brightest, the theological marines, the most educated, the most talented, those with cultural capital, those whose lives had to be noticed, right? It's not who he leaves behind. He commissions his disciples, this ragtag group of nobodies, and he commissions Peter, the one born with his foot in his mouth. He commissions you 
to do what? Nothing less than the overthrow of hell and evil itself. Anywhere that ruin has come, anywhere that dying and death and destruction is the norm, the church is to be part of the solution. The church is to be there to say, no, that is not the only way things have to be. Well, how do we do this? Well, it first starts with rightly understanding who Jesus is. He asks, who do people say the Son of Man is? It's interesting. Not first of all, who do you say the Son of Man is, or who do you say I am, but who do people say the Son of Man is? Who is he talking about? Who are the people? Well, Matthew tells us that Jesus has come to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and it's one of those things like the genealogies we looked at last week that you just kind of skip over. It's a a geographical side note. But it's so important because asking that question in that town is very different than asking it in Jerusalem. What kind of city was Caesarea Philippi? Well, around 20 B.C., Caesar had given the town and its surrounding area to King Herod, and Herod had built up the city, including a temple of white marble to honor and worship Caesar. And after Herod died in 4 B.C., the region passed to his son Philip, who further built it up and renamed it basically in the vernacular Caesarville. And the whole city in itself is a temple to Caesar, but there was also a Syrian temple to Baal. And there was a Greek temple to the god God Pan, or goddess Pan. And there were 11 other temples, 14 temples of worship in a relatively small town. So here's this penniless, homeless, itinerant rabbi with his tiny little band of nobody disciples asking, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they answer him in very expected Jewish ways, as if they were answering the question in Jerusalem. The phrase Son of Man was used 107 times in the Old Testament, mostly in the book of Ezekiel, to to, um, portray this coming figure who would come and fulfill the hopes of Israel. And so, Son of Man, they say, well, some say the Son of Man is John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But that's what they would say in Jerusalem. In Caesarea Philippi, in Portland, they would say, huh? Who? Look at all these temples around. Get in line. You're not the one. You're not the Messiah. Maybe we'll have a side temple over here for you, Jesus, but we're going to maintain all of the other temples. Thank you very much. He was a nobody in Caesarea Philippi. This was downtown Paganville. Every temple in that city would say that Jesus is 100% wrong about his claim to be Messiah. And he's trying to get his disciples to see that point as well, because he's trying to get them to see that he is not just John the Baptist, not just Elijah or one of the prophets. He's not just another temple or one more option. He's what? Well, who do you say that I am? And that's a question for us as well. Who do you say that Jesus is? Notice the turn of phrase. It's no longer impersonal. Who do people say the Son of Man? But who do you say I am? Isn't he claiming to be that person? Isn't he asking them to acknowledge that? And who responds, of course, Peter. Always Peter. 
And he says, you are the king. You are the anointed one. You are the ruler who will come to turn back evil. The son of the God who is alive, not dead. And that's what Messiah means. That's what he is assigning to Jesus in that confession. You are all of that. You are the one. And Jesus does what? Does he rebuke him? No, I'm just one of the ones. No, he says that is revelation. That didn't come from you, Peter. That came from God in heaven. In our day, we talk about aha moments or epiphanies or realizations that we don't expect to have, that in some way we can't control or cause to happen. We've been noodling over this problem at work or this project, and suddenly inspiration strikes, and we get it. The solution hits us, and in that moment of creativity, we think, where did that come from? You can't create these moments. They have to come upon you, and in fact, sometimes they sneak up on you. Well, Peter was out fishing one day, and revelation came upon him. Jesus walked up to him and said, Peter, put down your nets and follow me. The biggest, most substantial moment in all of his life walked up onto him unexpectedly. And that moment comes to fullest expression here in Matthew 16. Because Jesus is saying that no one would naturally look around at all of these temples and all of these options and say, Jesus is the one. In a city set up to memorialize the most powerful human on the planet at that time, Caesar, no one would say, this penniless, homeless rabbi is the one. The one with no cultural capital. You're the one, Jesus. You are the Messiah. No one would say that. No one would choose to say that. The only way you can connect those dots is if the Father in heaven reveals it to you. And this doesn't happen just simply because you grew up in a certain family or in a certain context. It didn't happen because you opened your Bible and were smarter than everyone else and figured it out. It's not because you studied harder. If you're here this morning and that's your confession, it came upon you. It was a gift to you. The other words in Ezekiel that he uses to talk about this moment is that this heart of stone that is irresponsive to God, that in fact wants nothing to do with him, is taken out and replaced by the heart of flesh, a soft heart towards the things of God. Or what Paul says, you were spiritually dead and now you've been made alive. If you're sitting here today and your confession is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of of the living God. You should be, I should be, the most grateful people on the planet. Despite whatever is going on in your life, whatever difficulties and trials that you're facing or that we as a church might be facing, the truth of how things are and how things will be has been revealed to you. Be grateful. Be thankful. Take a few moments each day this week to reflect upon that, asking God that despite your circumstances, that you would have a heart of softness, that you would be grateful, that you would recognize the fact that He has gifted you the most amazing gift that anyone could have, His own Son. And maybe if you've never wanted it before, you've never thought it might be true before, but now you're wondering, you're questioning, 
Open yourself up to Him. Ask Him to reveal Himself to you as who He is. While we believe that it is God who initiates, God who draws, no one who has ever asked has ever been turned down. So ask. Ask that that confession would be made real to you. So first of all, in order to be the church that Jesus wants us to be, we have to understand who Jesus is. And the church is only as healthy and as vibrant and as strong and as dangerous to hell as they believe who Jesus is, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of the living God. And the church is sick and anemic and dying to the extent that Peter's confession isn't decisively held and believed. So what does this church look like? What kind of community does Jesus leave us to be? Well, it's first of all made up of individuals whose lives are decisively founded and constructed upon this confession. Notice this. This is incredible. Peter says who Jesus really is, and Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, you have said something about me. Now let me tell you who you are. The confession that he makes changes his identity so much that Jesus changes his name and says, now you are Peter. It's such a foundational reversal in his life that he's a new person, and Jesus assigns him a new name. You've said something about me, Peter. Let me tell you now who you are. Because of this, you are the bedrock of my design, my redesign of all humanity. I'm going to build a people that will threaten hell on you. Let me tell you who you are now. The people of in-town. You are the people who have received God's favor, His welcome. His salvation has been revealed to you. His kingship has been asserted in your life. So let's be very practical. You know, we all have leading influences in our life, some of them good. What our parents taught us, hard-fought wisdom earned through difficulties in life, Maybe our spouse, maybe a good friend is a leading influence in your life, and these are good things, but there are others, past hurts that still rule us and dictate to us how we can feel and how we can think, passions that have been placed on something unhealthy and destructive, emotional and, yes, spiritual pathologies that distort and twist us, other people's opinions. These can become leading influences in our lives in a negative way. And what if we were to think of these things as kings, as rulers, as thrones in our life? Because in that they rule your life and never give up and are never fully pleased, they are, in fact, kings because you're forever beholden to them. But if you make Peter's confession, it topples all of them. All of the distorted desires that keep leading you down dead ends, all of the pressures and opinions of other people get unseated as leading authorities and leading influences in your life. 
Now, this isn't instantaneous. It takes time and it takes work because kings don't give up their thrones easily. But each time one taps you on the shoulder and says, listen to me, obey me, you have the right to say, I have one king in my life. I have one leading authority, not you, but it is Jesus, the Messiah, the king of the world. I have one king. And the people that say that, the churches that say that, well, they threaten hell itself. They make hell nervous. Now, maybe you're familiar with the debate, and many, many pages have been written on who is the rock here? Is it Peter, or is it his confession, or is it something else entirely? And I have an opinion, but I don't have the time to talk it through. But here's the thing I want you to know, that wherever you fall on that, wherever you land on that, any of those scenarios, it is not the character of Peter or the strength of his confession, which is foundational. It says it is Jesus who builds his church. And therefore, people like Peter, imperfect, impulsive, divided people, people like you and people like me, we can be people upon which Jesus builds his church. Because the Bible makes it plain that Jesus ultimately is the one who is the rock. He is the chief cornerstone. And when we as a church confess, like Peter, that he is the rock, that he alone is king, hell gets nervous. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This word Hades is a familiar Semitic term. It's an expression for the threshold of the realm of death. And friends, if we take this passage seriously, that the, then we must conclude that the realm of death is seeking you this morning. That's rather morbid. But don't you see, in this passage, the gates of Hades, the realm of death, is the aggressor. It is seeking death in your life. It is seeking to prevail over you and over this church. It is seeking victory. And it's seeking to prevail not only in your eventual literal death, but also in the hundred seemingly minor decisions that you will make today, in your spending habits, in your priorities, in how you choose to go about your day, and how you choose to treat inconvenient people in your life. Death is seeking to rule all of those decisions. It is seeking to prevail. Jesus is telling us that there is a power, a spiritual power that is actively cultivating death in your life. And the only way to prevail against it is to have a new king. It's to have the real king, the Messiah. So why are you here this morning? Maybe you're here because you're searching for answers. You're questioning spiritually, and you think maybe, maybe Jesus might be the one. Maybe He has answers that make sense of my life and my spiritual quest. Others of us who would call ourselves Christians are here for a variety of felt needs. We're here to worship. We're here to sing. We're here for fellowship. We're here for community. We're here for learning. We're here for encouragement. And all of these things are wonderful. 
But here's one thing I think we should consider, that we should come in order to be equipped to take the confession of Jesus as the Messiah into all realms of your life and address the ruin and the death and the dying that are going on there. You can address the fact that your body is literally falling apart. It is literally unwinding at the moment. And you literally will die. But we can come to learn. We can come to be equipped with a message of new life that gets, gives hope in the midst of that truth. We can come to be equipped with a message of resurrection to become a community that hates death and pushes against it with all of its energy, but is not ultimately defeated by it. The gates of Hades, the gates of death, are not unchallenged in this community. And we can also begin to live with a siege, warfare mentality to push back against all of those areas in our world where death seems to reign unchallenged. The places in our city where addiction and mental illness seem to own people, where accelerated death is the rule. In, poverty, in pockets of poverty where there is no hope of things ever changing, this church can be the hands and feet and words of Jesus to say, no, there's reason for hope. And I'm here in the name of Jesus to help bring that hope. In those relationships that are locked in a death spiral, a fight to the end, we can say, no, there is reason for hope. There is a flag of resurrection that can be planted in this relationship. And it takes people. It takes you it takes a church that is willing to step into those places. The community of Jesus steps in to cast a vision, an alien vision of new life, of resurrection, and of hope. There's an iconic scene in the Shawshank Redemption, and Andy and Red, the two main characters, are talking, and they're sitting against the wall, and they've been in this prison, Shawshank, for decades now. And Andy begins to talk about life outside the walls, as if it matters as if it's real, if it's a, as if it's attainable to him. He talks about a beach in Mexico, a new life there, and he begins dreaming about it. And Red cautions him about having these visions of a better life. Mexico is way down there, and you're stuck in here. But Andy, the dreamer, the visionary, says, it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living or get busy dying. Friends, the, the confession that Peter makes, the confession that this church relentlessly holds to means that we're not stuck inside a closed system, that there is an alien voice, the voice of Jesus saying, get busy living or get busy dying. And he gives us, his church, an alien identity, an identity based upon the confession of Jesus as the Messiah, come to set the world right. But you see, in order for that message to have effect, his church can't simply be alien, but the church has to be resident. You can't simply be an alien in your world. You have to be a resident. We have to be those that are willing to live in the world as it is, to inhabit, 
to incarnate the hope of Jesus in the midst of real relationships and real struggles and real problems, not to sort of just ride it out to the end, waiting for the end. But you're called, if this is your confession, Peter is, con- is commissioned ultimately to do what? It is to live out the resurrection in his life. And if you are making that confession that he does, if that's yours, then you're not simply waiting for the end. In town is not simply waiting for the end. But you're called to live with hope and to cultivate life in your schools and in your neighborhoods and in your workplaces and in your playgrounds, in all of the places that you inhabit. You're to have this alien hope, but be residents, resident aliens. And this was the situation that Israel found itself in. In the passage that we read earlier, Jeremiah 29, settle down, build houses, marry and have children, pray for the prosperity of the city. You're going to be here a while. Dream of heaven. Dream of ultimate happiness. But try to bring pieces into your life now. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer each and every week that God's will would be done on, he- in, on earth as it is in heaven. You see, finally, your hope is completely alien. It comes from somewhere else. It is revealed to you. It is given to you. Blessed are you, Simon Peter. Blessed are you, for this did not come from you, but from God Himself, from a voice outside of the world as it is. But it's an alien voice articulated by residents, lo- those who love their city, and want to be a part of it, and want to bring the hope of Jesus to inhabit their neighborhoods and care for their neighbors in intentional relationships with the people that live there. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that You would make us people that would care deeply about the needs around us and to realize, not with pride, but with great humility, that we inhabit a message or a message inhabits us that can bring hope. Lord, I pray that we would extend that hope to others, that we would invite people into that hope, invite people into new life. Lord, I pray that we would do so even as broken people who need new life ourselves. And many of us are wrestling, struggling through deep problems and deep relational hurt things that feel unresurrectable, Lord, I pray that You would step in and first initiate new life in us and here as a church so that we would be able to take that new life to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.